Is it on? There we go. Oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's Sunday. It's Sunday. You know, it's interesting, give you a little historical fact, thanks, sweetheart, is um, prior to the Reformation, um, Protestant Reformation, 500 years ago, um, front and center of churches used to actually be um, communion um, because the Catholic Church had a sacramental view of um, the Lord's Supper, meaning uh, we mainly are saved through the sacraments, through the church itself. Uh, as in like the Roman Catholic Church. But here's what's interesting. Um, when the Reformation happened, it actually changed the way, the shape, the look of churches to where now front and center was actually not the sacraments, but the lectern, the pulpit. Because ultimately we are Protestants and we protest that the word of God has the final authority. And actually, the Word of God is what creates the people of God to rejoice in the sacraments. So it sits under, ultimately. Amen. We don't gather to break bread, though that's part of the reason that we gather. We gather, as Paul has told us, to sit under God's Word. What does he say to Timothy? In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, I give you this charge. What is it? Kerusanton logon. Preach the, only one that knows that is Dan, preach the word in season and as he's in correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. So we gather this morning because God has spoken and he has spoken in his word. The word of God is sufficient. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for training in righteousness so that the person of God, the man of God may be thoroughly equipped Thoroughly furnished, it says in the King James. I like that, right? Picture someone just working on a project and sits back and goes, now that's complete. So that's why we gather. We, we gather right now. And during this moment, this is a, a time where we're continuing to worship. See? We're, we're worshiping as, as we're learning about our great and glorious triune God. So I say all of that because... You're like, man, that's hit the hit out the gates pretty pretty full on. Yeah. I say all that because often um often in um contemporary churches, what happens? We're not we're not coming with a sense of gathering, we're not coming with a sense of wanting to commit to a local body of believers. We're coming because we like the music, right? Or we're coming because the coffee's good or maybe the people accept us or we feel a sense of community or right and, th and this happens i mean you, they may not say it out loud but the average sort of evangelifish christian today is, is going to show up at a church and and they'll, they'll they'll say oh well the first song wasn't happy clappy enough okay uh, tick that one no one said hi to me at the door i'll oh, tick that one so we're, it's like this this machine kind of like the rsl club right like I don't like that RSL club, so I'm going to go to the other RSL club because that's where I really feel at home. And, and we're basing, we're judging church completely on 
ignorance, actually. Why we even gather as a church, what the church even means, what we're supposed to do together, how we're, we're made to actually do life together. And we've met and we've sat in judgment with an with a, with a apparatus, with a template of which is actually false to judge the church by. Does that make sense? Listen, when a, a church, as it's supposed to be functioning and, and healthy and biblical, is one that does life together, one that gathers together, one that sits under God's word together, we, we absolutely need each other. Our, 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 our Christianity was never meant to just be this solo pilgrimage, right? I mean, even think about what Andrew just read for us in Ephesians. That's not written to individuals. Does that make sense? It's written to a church in Ephesus. Oftentimes in Bible study, we go, okay, well, so how does this work out in my individual life? And that's fine to a point. But more, I think, and more I'm realizing in Scripture is, how can we do this together, you see? As opposed to how, what is this, how does this work out in my individual autonomous life? And so we're going to be spending the next several weeks thinking about life together as a church and what that looks like together. Now, the first thing I, I want to say to start off with is, I guess when we think about life together as a church, we have to think about unity together. Praying for, working towards unity. Because we can really nail it on doctrine. And I will say, to your guys' credit, I have seen a massive growth and interest in studying God's word and knowing him. We, we had last week 22 people show up for Dan's equip class at 8.30 in the morning on a cold morning in winter to think about bibliology. And you can talk to anyone that was there, and it was very beneficial. Now, we are growing in that regard, so praise God. We can only know God insofar as we know Him from His Word. Not our experiences, not our subjective emotions. Only what God has revealed about Himself is what's ultimately true about Him. Therefore, we have to study His Word. We have to know it. We have to rivet one another onto that end. And that's what I've seen happening in this church. Praise God. That is really encouraging. But if we don't, if we're not actually doing life together, though, we're sort of just kind of like some corporation or the military that's trying to beef each other up, right, with a bunch of knowledge. And that's not the end game. The end game is to know Christ. The end game is to sharpen each other, to do life together. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And so we're going to start off this series on life together, thinking about unity as a church and praying towards that end, working towards that end. It doesn't come naturally. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't say you need to be eager to maintain it. Right? You need to be eager to maintain to eat vegetables, right? But it doesn't come easy sometimes. You don't have to be eager to eat hot chips. That just comes naturally, right? But you have to be eager to, you have to actually put your shoulder to this. So as we look at this together, I want you to really think and say, okay, is this something that I'm after? I, is Rob painting a picture of unity that I'd like to be a part of? And if so, praise God, 
Let's get after it together. So let's be thinking about that. So unity within the church. A church that's committed to unity. All right? So that said, we're going to look at our text here in Ephesians. But before we do, let's just bow quickly and ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, what we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. What we are not, make us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, Ephesians, we, we looked a little bit at that last week. Um, Paul has spent three chapters um, laying out a doctrinal foundation. Um, and when we get to chapter four, uh, we really, we have a transition going on here. He moves from doctrine to duty, from principle to practice. Um, if you have your Bibles right in front of you, notice right how he starts off in Ephesians 4. Cast your eyes on just the second word of chapter 4, or just the first bit of it. He says, I therefore. Can you see that? I therefore. It's the word therefore. You don't start a sentence that way, do you? You don't sit down to have a coffee with your friend and say, I therefore. Your friend would be like, this is awkward. Right? You therefore what? <laughs> right? And, every, and here's, a, here's a principle. Every time you see a therefore in the Bible, ask yourself, what's it there for? Okay? So what, what's it there for? It's reflecting back. This is a, a transition here. This is exactly what happens in the book of Romans. The book of Romans... Paul spends 11 chapters on doctrine. And when he finally gets to chapter 12, he starts off by saying, therefore, therefore. He does that in Galatians and Thessalonians. He does that in a lot of books. So it helps us see where we're at in the book, sort of bigger picture. Does that make sense? Now, he says, therefore, like in Romans, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. Can you hear that? Back to the 11 chapters I've been banging on. God's mercy. Don't just sit there. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In view of God's mercy, you do these things. So can you see how that little word, therefore, is like a gear shift? That's what's happening here in Ephesians. The first half of the letter unfolds God's eternal plan of salvation, summing up all things in Christ. Listen, if you're a Christian, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, the Lord has called you. The Lord had to call you. You would have never come if the Lord didn't call you and effectually, sovereignly grant you salvation. The Lord has called you to himself. You used to walk this way. You used to be in a lifestyle characterized by sin and rebellion, but not anymore. The Lord has called you by name. You've been saved. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, 
live a life worthy of this calling. Look at verse 2. Verse 1 again. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of... Notice walk, that means how you live. Your, your daily uh, behavior, right? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Imagine this week, Paul the Apostle... I know he's dead, but just imagine he taps you on the shoulder. And, and he says, and, and turn around, and there he is, right? And first of all, you'd, you know, you'd think it's a, someone dressed up, or his, you know, his, his attire, but he's, he taps you on the shoulder, and oh my goodness, it's Paul the Apostle. And then he, he, he you know, grabs you by the shirt collar and pulls you in, and now you're really uncomfortable. And he says, looks you right in the eye, and he goes, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which the Lord has called you. And this is how you're going to do it. Now, you'd be sitting there going, I, I, I bet he's going to talk about standing up for Jesus at, at my school with my friends. And, and he's still, he's really, you know, he, Paul's awkward, so he's just waiting, you know. He's, this is how you're going to do it. And you're just kind of processing in your head now. Oh, uh, I, I, I bet, I, I bet he's going to, I bet he's going to tell me that I need to be really merciful with my coworkers. Uh, I bet he's going to tell me to move overseas. That, that's what he's going to do. Walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And this is what he says. When it comes to living a life worthy of our calling, guess where the first place Paul's mind goes to? relationships within the local church. Notice verse 2. Notice what he says. In all humility, you see that there? With all humility and gladness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. You see that? <laughs> Isn't it interesting that the first subject Paul addresses on how to walk or live consistently with our calling concerns matters of unity within the church? In fact, it's not until you get to verse 17 that he finally mentions those outside the church. Do you understand if the Lord has saved you, if you're united to Christ, if you're a member of God's household who's been adopted by him, and you want to know what your marching orders are here? Like, what do I do? The Lord's called me. How do I live up to this calling, right? Paul gives you 15 verses on exactly how and where this calling is to be tested and worked out. It's within the space of the local church. It's not up to individuals to decide how to live out this calling. Their way, in their world, by themselves. Because we can easily sit back, can we not, and convince ourselves that we are very patient and forbearing 
and humble and gentle until all that gets put to the test. <laughs> and the Lord says, guess what, friend? I've got a community where that gets to get worked out every single week for you. It's called the local church. Picture you opened your email tomorrow morning, right? You get up, you have your coffee or your tea or, or neither or whatever. But right when you open up your email, there in your inbox is an email from your boss. And it reads, the subject line reads, all caps, URGENT, with your name attached to it. You think you'd just, eh, blow it off? No, you'd, you'd open it up fairly quickly, right? Now, in the same way, Paul commands us to do something with a sense of urgency. His request almost has a, a bit of crisis to it. Like, do this and do it now. Like, like it's got to be that email that you're going to open right away. Look at verse 3. He says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Interesting. We don't create the unity. Did you see that? He does. God does. But it's our job to maintain it, to preserve it. This is something we need to take pains over. The Lord creates it by the Spirit, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But like, that doesn't just perpetuate itself on its own. What's, our, what's the command to us? Maintain it, preserve it, right? And be eager to do it, like that email. Open it quick, do it now. Don't wait. Don't think it's just going to happen. Kind of like in the summertime. If you don't maintain weeds, what happens? Your house looks like Jumanji, right? And then you call Nigel Bibby and he says, all right, fine, I'll come over there. And he brings his whip snip. And we say, don't bring your whip snip. Why? No, he doesn't do that. No, but if you go out and if you've got a bunch of weeds and you just whip snip them, it, it's sort of kind of, it's like putting a Band-Aid over it, right? It, the, you, you can't see the weeds, but they're still there. If you really want to deal with the problem, you have to maintain it. To get down on your knees, you have to put your shoulder to it, so to speak, get your hands dirty, rip those suckers out by the root. So it is with unity in this church, friend. It's something we need to take pains over, something we need to be especially conscientious about. Did, did you hear the word, what I just said, in case you missed it? I said we. Did you hear that? We, we need to keep it. We need to preserve it. The, this obligation is laid on all of us. Look, I will say, you, you have a fantastic elder board. You have two brothers who care deeply for your souls, Andrew and Dan. And you've got some amazing deacons who want to serve this church in practical ways. But that's only like a handful of us. I don't know, how many deacons do we have? Sorry, I just made you sound important. Now I didn't, but how many deacons? Well, five or one of us or whatever there is. And elders, there's three of us. I mean, that's like, we could all have great unity. And, I, and actually, I do reckon we do have great unity with the deacons and the elders. But that doesn't, like, solve the problem. Does that make sense? 
I mean, I think it's wonderful that we have great unity together, but we're like, we're just a part of the church. This, this, the onus falls on all of you to maintain this. We can't just, I mean, as one of the pastors here, I can equip you, encourage you. I can try to foster that. I can try to galvanize you as, and towards unity, but I, 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 can't, I can't do it. The onus falls on you guys to do it. I, I can't force it. I can scream, shout, and all those things, but it doesn't change anything ultimately unless you guys are eager to maintain this, you see? So there has to be a commitment on your part. Are you willing to do this? Are you willing, are you willing to work and pray for unity in this church? Are you willing to work and pray for unity in this church? Well, how does that happen? Well, see, our lives together, our relationships must be marked by humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance. Now, where am I getting those things? Does those just sound nice? Well, no. Again, it's all there in verse 2. Can you see it? Right? All humility and gentleness, patience and forbearance. Without these virtues, it's impossible for us to maintain unity. So let's spend the remainder of our time just unpacking the two cousins, humility and gentleness. Humility and gentleness. Now, do you find it interesting that out of these four characteristics, humility stands as the fountainhead? Humility means to have a lowliness of mind. A lowliness of mind, which is totally foreign in our society. Just listen to the lyrics of popular songs and you'll mainly hear people boasting about how amazing they are and how much stuff they have. The world applauds pride, not humility. And it is a bit so real when you think about pride and you think about humility. It's a bit so real when you stop and think about it because the first sin was pride. And every sin after that has been in some way an extension of pride. I'm not sure what your upcoming plans are for this week. Some of you went and saw Hamilton and you didn't invite me to it. That's fine. <laughs> but I have to be humble and forgive you. But you could take me to Hamilton. There's also an invite. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know what your plans are this week. Um, I would guess probably most of you aren't going to spend your days reading ancient Greek and Roman literature. But for argument's sake, let's just pretend that this week you're just going to get just, just enraptured with ancient Greek and Roman literature. In fact, you're going to be so switched on about it, you're going to be so enthusiastic about it, that you're actually going to start a book club studying ancient Greek and Roman literature. Now, at this book club, no doubt there'd be some interesting discussions. But here's one thing you wouldn't hear talked about. Humility. Do you know why? The reason is, the word humility 
doesn't really exist in ancient Greek or Roman literature. On the few occasions it does show up, it's used in a very derogatory way to describe something shameful or weak or really to just to be pitied. But contrast that with, say, the Old Testament. And this word humility is all over the place. In fact, humility is what draws God's attention. There's an intriguing theme in Scripture about God's eyes. God's eyes, the eyes of the Lord, run to and fro throughout the earth. Obviously, God doesn't have physical eyes. God is a spirit. He doesn't need physical eyes because he's omniscient. Nothing escapes his notice. He's aware of all things. But listen, even though he's aware of everything, he's also searching for something in particular. Hear these words from the Lord himself in Isaiah 66. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You see, God is decisively drawn to humility, to the individual who is humble. The problem is, all of our attempts to be humble are shot through with sin. We are by nature full of pride. Each of us has refused to acknowledge our dependence upon God, and in so doing, have lifted our hearts against Him. We've contended for supremacy with Him. But Jesus came to earth as God's Son. He was born in a stable, raised in a poor family. He's the only one whom God the Father could look down at His baptism and say, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Only Jesus as the perfectly obedient son could claim for himself. Come to me, right? I am gentle and humble in heart. Jesus is the only one who fits that bill. Yet he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friend, Though you have lived your life in pride and in opposition to God, because of Jesus and his work on the cross, you can receive forgiveness of sins. You can be reconciled to God and know him as father and no longer as judge, only because of Jesus' perfect humility and perfect sacrifice on the cross for your pride. That truth should create deep humility in our hearts. C.J. Mahaney put it this way. He said, Jesus alone came to give his life as a ransom for the sins of many. And this separates him from any other sacrificial service that anyone else anywhere could ever offer. Here we find what is completely, utterly, and categorically unique about the Savior and his example. Now, now listen to what he says. Don't miss this. He goes on. And in true humility, 
our own service to others is always both an effect of his unique sacrifice and the evidence of it. His sacrifice alone makes it possible for us to achieve and experience true greatness in God's eyes. At the source of all Christian service in the world is the crucified and risen Lord who died to liberate us into such service. That's why all Christian service not only reflects the Savior's example, but should also remind us of His sacrifice. Ultimately, our Christian service exists only to draw attention to the source, to our crucified and risen Lord. What a quote. The gospel, you see, should shape our posture towards one another. It's a heart attitude, friend, that says, I'm not more important than you. Can you really say that? Can you really say that? I'm not more important than you. I, I don't mean just say it. I mean, I mean you're going to feel it because of you, th this reality of what CJ just said. I'm not important, more important than you. I want to concentrate on you instead of me. I want to build you up. I want to encourage you. I want to think of you more highly than myself. I want to hear what you have to say. I want to care about your concerns. Do you understand? Paul is not just saying, roll up your sleeves and get to work and be humble. Just try to practice it. I know it's terrible, but just come on. Get, get, get at it. That's not what he's saying. Paul, Paul's is not doing that. Rather, humility is a sign of someone who is converted, who has embraced Christ. You could miss it here in English, but there's actually just two commands here. The first one is bearing with one another. If you're looking there. The second is maintaining unity. So, in other words, live out your calling, not a period. If you're looking there, it's a comma, right? In other words, he doesn't say, live out your calling, now, get at this. Does that make sense? It's live out your calling, comma, with all humility, and gentleness and patience. Those three things simply flow out of a life that's been born again. Those are, those are not commands. Does, does that make sense? It's not, <laughs> it's not like Paul's like this. It's not like he's like, live out your calling. Okay, take out your pins. Get ready. Write these four things down. Be humble. Be gentle. Everyone got that? Be patient. Those three things are simply just indicative of someone who's been born again. You, so you don't need to roll up your sleeves. You should ask yourself if those things aren't indicative in your life if you are born again. Now, of course, we are never going to do that perfectly. Hence, that's why Christ is our trailblazer of humility. Who, though being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, right? Taking the very nature of a servant, being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God exalted him to the name above, right? Every name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So, my Christian brother and sister here, are you keen to pray and work for unity in this church? Are you keen to have this be your posture, one of humility, of gentleness, and of patience? Paul says we can't have unity in this church without humility, a genuine humility. And also gentleness or meekness. Gentleness or meekness. Now, these two are, like I said, humility and gentleness are close cousins. When you hear the word gentleness, though, what, what, what goes through your head? You might, I guess, picture a mother talking to her kids sort of in a nice motherly-like tone. Not, not, not yelling at them, but like, you know, like, in like a nice, gentle tone. I suppose that could be one expression of gentleness, but the term really means power under control. Have you ever heard of the, uh, the phrase, meekness is not weakness? Um, if I were to use this word to describe an animal, it would be like a wild animal like a horse. You ever seen movies, you know, where there's a wild horse? And someone's trying to, there's a lot of movies like this, right? And they're, they're trying to tame the horse, okay? And then finally, once that rider gets up and saddles the horse, has that, has that horse lost any of its strength or power? No. Can it still run just as fast? Well, I suppose it, what someone wanted to run a little less fast, but it, can, it still has all the same power. The difference is, it runs only as fast as the owner tells it to go. It runs only where its master commands it to go. That's the picture of meekness or gentleness. It doesn't, see, imply weakness. In fact, it means strength under control. It's not vengeful or vindictive. It doesn't demand its own personal rights. You know, when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter drew his sword to defend him, what did Jesus say? Do not think, don't, do not think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? Even in his humility, uh, sorry, even in his humanity, Jesus had access to infinite power. And he could, he could have used any of that in his own defense anytime he wanted, but he didn't. Peter tells us he committed no sin, neither was, no, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's meekness, friends. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. That's power under control. And that is what Paul is calling us to do. Use all the forces, all the resources that God has given you to personally, right, to the benefit others. The body builds itself up 
when each one is working together and each one does its part. Have you ever had like a really gnarly toothache? Now, you know that if it's bad enough, it's not just affecting your tooth, right? Like you're not like, oh, it's just here. It's, it begins to actually, your whole body begins to be pretty racked with pain because that tooth is causing the pain. And it's actually like a ripple effect and causing pain throughout the rest of your body. Now, when each part does, each person does its part, remember we're a, the visual that Paul gives us here is that we're a body? When each person is putting their shoulder to this, then we see this beautifully in unity. But I guess let me individualize it for a second. When it comes to, friend, when it comes to humility, when it comes to gent this idea of gentleness, right, or meekness, power under control, are you quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry? Or are you just shooting from the hip because someone's offended you? If the whole church acted the way you did, how do you think this church would look? Would we be vengeful and spiteful? This is why we need each other. Because yes, I heard someone say yes, yes we are. Yes, we are sinners, but we're sinners saved by grace. And that's why we need each other to help each other. Mark Dever put it this way. He says, friend, what are you looking for in a church? Good music? A happening atmosphere? A traditional order of service? How about a group of pardoned rebels? whom God wants to use to display His glory before all the heavenly hosts because they tell the truth about Him and look increasingly just like Him, holy, loving, united. A group of pardoned rebels. And because of that truth, friends, will you commit? Will you commit to work for unity in this church? Will you pray towards that end? I'm seeing a lot of head nods, and that's great. Praise God for that. But here's the problem, potentially. Some, some of you are, and that's amazing. It'd be like this, you know. Will you pray for unity? Who's in? Ready? You know, come on, come on. Hands in. One, two, three. Here's the deceiving part, though. In a gathering like this, we have Christians here and non-Christians here. We have people that don't want to commit to what I just described. I reckon they're probably a minority, but there are some here. So how do we differentiate people that are putting their hand in? Does that make sense? How do we know? Are we just going to hope for it until something blows up? Oh, bugger. guess it didn't really work. <laughs> how do we know? How do we know who's keen? We have to have some way to formalize this. I, we, who's on the roster? Is it the person that comes here every six weeks? Is it the person that, you know, we're not really sure what's going on in their life? They're not really keen to pray and work for Union Church? How do we know? How do we know? How do, well, again, there has to be some way in which we can sift it, right? 
how do I know? I, I mean, I can see you all going like this. Praise God. When I say, you know, put your hand in. Who's excited? People, you know, nodding their heads. Woohoo! That's great. But that's not everybody. And I, I look, I'm a sinner. I'm a pardoned rebel. I need your help. I, I, I can't do this by myself. The elders, can, we can't do this. I want, will you put your shoulder to this with me? So if so, I need to know. I, I need to know who this group is. Remember I drew a circle on the board at the AGM? Who is that group? Is it everyone just that showed up here this morning? I hope so, but it's probably not. So how do we differentiate? We have to have some way to formalize it. And I will leave you on that cliffhanger because we're going to talk about that again <laughs> next week as we talk about gathering together, committing not to forsake gathering together on the Lord's day. So here's what I'm really excited. You know, I'm coming up, I've almost been a pastor here for three years. Bless your hearts. But I'm extremely excited about this because it's easy to kind of come in the building and again, but I don't know who's putting their hands in. Can you see I'm narrowing this here? And the elders, we are, we are tightening the circle, so to speak. Now, church, like, growth books, this would be like divorce, this would be like the blasphemy, right? <laughs> but I, I am so, do you know, let me, I'll end with a personal anecdote. Don't worry, honey, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be fun. <laughs> a lot of my notes that she was like... <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, Andrew, either. I know, I know all the people that get nervous when I... Do you know, let me just, personal anecdote. Do you know that I had a chance to, right out of high school, intern at one of the fastest growing, big mega churches in the United States? Okay, like this is what everybody wanted to be. In Australia as well. I don't say that like, yeah, just like, and it was built on a paradigm that had nothing to do with what I just described. It, 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 was, it was just an attendance machine. Take out, chuck out Bibles, chuck out sin. Let's, let's make this comfortable for seekers. It was called seeker friendly. And, and do you know what I saw? I saw absolutely none of this stuff. And ironically, that church has imploded. The senior pastor was fired for harassing women. The associate pastor has just recently been called out and fired for allowing pedophiles to work within the church for years, and he knew about it. But hey, it was rocking, huh? huh? Look at all the thousands of people we had. That's a hell... No. I loathe the days. I, I honestly... That, that to me, I want nothing to do with that. And they wrote all the books. Honestly. If I said the church's name, you'd know exactly what I'm talking about. And I was there. I was an intern there. I was taught their DNA. This is how you build a big church. And guess, and to my true confession here, I, I then tried to copycat that. I'd lower standards. I just try to keep people happy, keep them in the door. And then it dawned on me one day, what am I doing? 
It's not church. It's not the, it's not the way Jesus describes church. His holy bride, whom he purchased with his own blood. Christ loves the church. He gave himself for the church. This is, our church is to be committed to him. That's his bride. And so the more I experienced this church, not this church, the other church, I thought, you know what? I want nothing to do with this. I don't care how many people. And so I say all of that because I'm particularly, been here for three years, I'm particularly excited about this series. I hope and pray that the Lord stirs in many of your hearts an excitement to say, I want that. I want a church, I want to be a part of a group of people that's keen for unity. Deep, lasting, real unity. Forget the superficial stuff. That all just burns out anyways. Trust me, I've seen it. So, I mean, if you're excited about that, I'm, I'm thrilled. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to narrow things. It just will. But the Lord will build this church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Amen? Uh, I'm, let's, let's, um, let's go now to the time of, of communion together. Look, if you are in Christ, if Jesus and Jesus alone is the one you are trusting for salvation. Your faith is not a vague faith, but your faith is actually landed on the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And you are committed to him. This is a time to celebrate that reality, to remember his body broken, to remember his blood spilt. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is not an opportunity for you just to feel a part of this gathering and sort of grab the elements and kind of sneak them in. This is actually a time, if you're not a Christian, you really need to think about that reality. How can you get right with God? And so let those elements go by. There is no shame in that whatsoever. Those of us that are in Christ, those that helpers come forward, go ahead and grab the little communion bits, pull off all the little wrappings, hold on to them together, and we'll take it together as a church body.